You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Pasha's Emor opens with the most comprehensive catalog of laws in the Torah governing the holiness of the Kohanim, the priests, before pivoting to the command incumbent on every single Jew, regardless of station or status, to be Mekade Shem Shemaim, to sanctify God's holy name in public. Before concluding our Parsha with an actual case study in how to address a member of the congregation who blasphemes the name of God, we get a full elaboration of the festivals, the Mikroi Kodesh, the Holy Convocations. As you can see, we are still firmly in the territory of Kedusha, the times, spaces, and things of holiness. In detailing the festivals, the Torah inserts between the laws of Passover and Shavuot a specific commandment that links the two holidays like a connective tissue. Usfartem lochem mimacharas ha-shabbos miyom haviachem es omer ha sheva shabbosos tmimios tiena ad mimacharas ha-shabbos ha-shviz tisberu chamishim yom vikraftem mincha chadosha ladonoi. You shall count for yourselves from the morrow of the rest day, from the day when you bring the Omer of the waving, seven weeks they shall be complete. Until the morrow of the seventh week you shall count fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to Hashem. This should sound all very familiar to us. If the period between Pesach and Shavuot were akin to a football or basketball game, and please forgive me here if I've got basketball on my mind, I've been watching a stunning documentary on ESPN called The Last Dance. Highly recommended. Today, May 6th, 2020, the 12th of Iyar, 5780, would be just after halftime in the Count of Svira. In one of the most potent and profound formulations of the meaning of this mitzvah of Svira Saomer, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik offers an insight that first appears in print in 1945, in an essay called Sacred and Profane, Kodesh and Chol in World Perspectives. And here is the Rav. The basic criterion which distinguishes freeman from slave is the kind of relationship each has with time and its experience. Bondage is identical with passive intuition and reception of an empty, formal time stream. When the Jews were delivered from the Egyptian oppression and Moshe rose to undertake the almost impossible task of metamorphosizing a tribe of slaves into a nation of priests, a mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh, he was told by God that the path leading from the holiday of Pesach to Shavuot, from initial liberation to consummate freedom, gilu Shchina, the revelation of God, leads through the medium of time. The commandment of Svira was entrusted the Jew, the wondrous test of counting 49 successive days was put to him. These 49 days must be whole. If one day be missed, the act of numeration is invalidated. A slave who is capable of appreciating each day, of grasping its meaning and worth, of weaving every thread of time into a glorious fabric, quantitatively stretching over the period of seven weeks, but qualitatively forming the warp and woof of centuries of change, is eligible for Torah. He has achieved freedom. And in a wonderful gloss and in our Jewish tradition of commentary and exegesis, we find some 60 years later in an incredibly magisterial essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Chief Rabbi Lord Sachs, 
in his Sa'ak's Haggadah. He writes in an essay called Time as a Narrative of Hope that time is not simply something we measure. It is also something to which we bring some of our deepest assumptions about the nature of reality and mankind's place in the universe. The understanding of time differs from culture to culture and from age to age. Historians are generally agreed that with the Hebrew Bible, a quite new concept of time appeared. It is not too much to say, indeed many scholars have said, that this was one of Judaism's greatest contributions to the West. And here, Rabbi Sachs is really playing off of this theme found already in the essay Sacred and Profane by Rabbi Soloveitchik, that time as a matter of culture or time as an artifact of a worldview really does matter from civilization to civilization. And they, for example, cite the fact that Chinese culture and technology was far more advanced than anything in Europe in the late Middle Ages, coming out of the Middle Ages and into what we call today the Renaissance. But yet Europe somehow had a catalytic moment and the Rav and later Rabbi Sachs suggests that it was a function of the Hebraic sense of time, the Judeo-Christian sense of time, not just as a linear matter, but as a covenantal matter. It came when the religious visionaries of Israel heard God in history instead of seeing God in nature. If God transcends nature, then he is free. Unlike the gods of the ancient world, he is not bound by the laws of nature. God acts, not because he must, but because he wills and chooses. And the function of this new conception of time was to bring time into conversation with history and nature as a distinct creation of God, the creator, not as an identity with God. Here, history is not just an endless series of eternal recurrences or deja vu. Instead, it is like a journey with a starting point and a destination, or like a book with a beginning and middle and distantly glimpsed end. This is the sense of time that makes its appearance in the Hebrew Bible. Until Christianity borrowed it from Judaism, it existed nowhere else. The Greek writer Herodotus, the writer of the histories, for example, is widely known as the father of history, but he had no thought of history as an overarching narrative. It was simply the record of events. History for him was interesting simply because it happened and because it contained exemplary cases of courage and folly, success and failure, but it added up to no larger pattern. Jews thought otherwise. And Rabbi Sachs concludes this section of the essay by saying that the overthrowing of this structure of the structure of Egyptian civilization and its being wedded to nature and the unprecedented release of a whole nation from slavery showed that societies are not immutable. They belong not to nature, but to culture. They are made by men and women, and therefore they can be unmade and remade by men and women. Rabbi Sachs goes on to make the very bold claim and he knows that is bold because he had not seen it anywhere before that this Jewish conception of time, what he dubs covenantal time, what Rabbi Salvechik elsewhere calls the unitive time consciousness, Rabbi Sachs more elegantly dubs it covenantal time, that this is time not as continuous advance, but as a narrative with a beginning and a distant end in whose midst we are and whose twists and turns continue to surprise us. 
Rabbi Sachs's upshot of this is that this, namely this sense of covenantal time, is why the British and American revolutions succeeded, while the French and Russian revolutions really failed. There's a fundamental difference between philosophy, the gift of the Greeks to Western civilization, and the Hebrew Bible, the gift of Israel. Philosophy sees truth as system. The Bible sees truth as story. Philosophical systems are essentially timeless. They speak either of truth as eternal, or in the case of Hegel and Marx, of history as inexorable, predetermined. In Judaism, by contrast, time is of the essence, which is why its vision can be told only in the form of narrative. First this, then that, it came to pass after these things, chronological rather than logical sequence. Two things only stand outside of time, the beginning of days, Eden and paradise, and the end, the messianic age, Yemot HaMashiach and Olam Haba. Between them lies the long journey to redemption. And here Rabbi Sachs is borrowing in many ways from another teacher of his, not only Rabbi Soloveitchik and his conception of Jewish time or biblical time, but the philosopher, the Scottish philosopher, Alistair MacIntyre, who Rabbi Sachs briefly studied with in England. And as any fan and reader of Rabbi Sachs knows how often he invokes Alistair MacIntyre's classic 1984 study in moral theory after virtue, knows how indebted Rabbi Sachs is to the thought of Alistair MacIntyre. And here, as MacIntyre says, stories are lived before they are told. That is, to act is to live out the account, which is part of the action itself. It is to be involved or caught up in the story of that particular action as both teller and actor, or agent or character. And this is really what Rabbi Sachs means when he says that truth is story in the Bible, as opposed to truth being system. And for McIntyre and Sachs following him, there is a deep question of personal identity, the very question of how we conceive of ourselves as coherent beings, as coherent individuals, is resolvable into that of the unity of life which is really that of the coherence of a life story. Because for McIntyre, one's own life can be viewed as a story in which one functions as both author and principal character or protagonist. My life for McIntyre, in the sense in which they might use that term, is of course composed of all the experiences I have as an individual and the actions, small scale and large, short term and long, in which I engage. And so McIntyre very much believes that there's a deep moral dimension to this question of narrative, to this question of the story, to this question of time. McIntyre goes on to see a moral dimension in this question. I can only answer the question of what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? And here the Jew can proudly say that he is part of a glorious story, a story of devotion, a story of faith, a story of a journey, 
all of these elements are his story. And when we answer the question of what am I to do, we can also say that I can understand what I'm to do because I know that I'm part of a story as a Oved Hashem, as a devoted worshiper of God, part of a sacramental story, part of a devotional story, part of a salvational story. That's the story that I find myself a part of. And here I'll conclude with an observation that as much as we are counting time, we are totally confounded by time, especially in this age of Corona. Time feels limitless. All of our traditional conventions of time, our hours, our days, our weeks, our months are upended. And we truly don't have a conception of time as we once did. How do we correct that? How do we regain that sense of time that only the freemen, as Rav Soloveitchik says, we need to if we are to reach Shavuot? And here it would be wonderful to invoke the words of the historian Eric Vogelin, who suggests that it was not by accident that God chose the desert to reveal the plan of a new kind of society, that we're headed to Shavuot, we're all headed to Shavuot just a few weeks away. And here is Vogelin, cited by Rabbi Sachs, when the world has become desert, man is at last in the solitude in which he can hear thunderingly the voice of the Spirit. When the world has become desert, man is at last in the solitude in which he can hear thunderingly the voice of the Spirit. If we can somehow capture that solitude, and if we could recreate that desert, that midbar, which is the place of human silence, in which we can sense the divine word in its fullness and power, then we can capture that sense of true freedom, that consummate freedom, and that Gilui Shechina. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 